It's time for episode 21 of Presentable. I'm your host, Jeffine, and this week we're joined by Shahid Ahmed. He spent years in the game industry at Sony and PlayStation, but now has returned to his roots as an independent designer and developer focusing exclusively on VR games. We discuss the design fundamentals of both virtual and augmented reality and look ahead to what the future may bring. I have been playing some video games for the last couple years, but before that, I was not really much of a gamer at all. The sort of tipping point for me was when my son turned five years old, he asked me about Minecraft, and so we went off and explored it together. And I'll tell you what, I am uh, still playing Minecraft these two years later. I'm, uh, wow. Do you play any Minecraft? Yeah, do you play any Minecraft? Uh, not recently. I'm sure that my son, too, will be dragging me into it in a year's time. I mean, I, I played it when it was doing the rounds, when it was becoming big and so on, out of professional interest, of course. But well, of course. As, I, I'm, less a, I'm less a gamer and more a developer and biz dev person than I ever used to be. I mean, I used to be, I guess, 25% gamer, 75% developer when I started. Uh-huh. And now I would say... Mike and Federico are 10 times the gamers that I am. But that's okay because, you know, playing video games is is not really what I do. Um, I do play them. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I can get extremely good at them if I want to. But hey, I'm 51, you know. <laughs> do I really want to really get good at a video game? I think I have other priorities. Well, that's probably why I think Minecraft has been appealing to me is that uh, getting good at it is really more of an intellectual pursuit than a hand-eye coordination thing. You know what I mean? Right, um, right. It's it's not one of those, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better term, twitchy games where you need to have these amazing reflexes because, man, those decline over the years, I've found. <laughs> <laughs> don't they just? <laughs> so you, so, so here's one of the things that I have really enjoyed about Minecraft is, I, I, well, I, I do some of the justification, I think, that I heard you just doing about, you know, well, this is professional research. I'm like, well, this is, you know, this is father-son bonding, and so that's why I'm playing. But the reality is now I just play for fun, and I enjoy it. But one of the things that I has actually kind of crossed over for me from, like, playing a game like Minecraft, which is all about sort of resource uh, accumulation and um, and building contraptions and things like that out of the resources that you get is this idea of uh, mise en place, the French kind of culinary thing of like everything in its place where, you know, you go, you go back in a good restaurant in the kitchen and they literally have every ingredient all prepared, everything ready to go. So when you actually do the preparation of the food, like everything is to hand. And there's this sort of psychological phenomenon that happens that makes you more easily able to step into a creative space, having all the stuff around me. And, and it, and that's sort of, so, you know, you're, you're going to be building something in Minecraft. You have your stone and your, your sticks and your, all your ingots and stuff like that. It has kind of bled over to things like developer environments and getting ready to build something in the real world that I found really kind of interesting about that. I don't know if you, I mean, if you're a developer, you know all about like getting your dev environment exactly set up exactly the way you want it so that you can be free of all of that just to do your work. You know what I mean? Oh my God, you, you've completely nailed my entire psychology. And, <laughs> you know, for the, for the last God knows how many years, if my working environment, and I'm not just talking about my digital working environment, I'm talking about my physical working environment. It's the yeah. lifelong hack, 
you know, uh, hack upon hack upon hack upon hack. What can I do to I, not just psychologically hack myself, but physically hack myself in a way that makes me the most productive I can possibly be and therefore produce my best work. It's just a lifelong project. You know, my my physical environment has been shaped over the last year and a quarter at home and is still being shaped, you know. Oh, if I did this, I'd be even better. If I did this, I'd feel even better. Right. I don't think you can put too high a price on making sure that you are optimally configured to minimize the distance between thought and creation. Oh, that's a good way to put it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And any, no matter how tiny impediment to that just has to be eliminated. You got to get that out of the way. It's like electrical resistance, right? If you get close to the asymptote there, you get to incredible effects. So for example, uh, if you super cool something, um, there are incredible benefits. It's, I guess that's how uh, maglev works with supercooled magnets, when you absolutely minimize the amount of resistance, you get to this amazing state where electricity behaves in a very unusual way. And I think creativity is very similar to that. As you start to approach the asymptote, even the smallest impediments make a big difference. So I find myself being hugely affected by um, the sound of barking dogs, which maybe two or three years ago, they would have just been the least of my problems because I was trying to cope with other difficulties in my environment. But now I hear a barking dog. Oh my God, that, I was going at, I don't know, 250 miles per hour. And that's now slowed me down to 240 miles per hour. It's just about to break free. <laughs> this is um, something I've been thinking about uh, recently because I took an office here in London. Um, I kind of, I work all over uh, because I don't know, this new job I have is mostly meeting with people and hearing about new ideas and, you know, stuff like that, which is amazing. But I hadn't really settled down into an office uh, and had been kind of working out at home and cafes and, and things like that. And I took an office. I went just here. I live over in Shoreditch and there's a WeWork here. There's a WeWork everywhere in London now. It seems like, oh my God, they're everywhere. But I went to WeWork and apparently they are the same worldwide in that I get on a video conference with somebody uh, recently and they said, are you at WeWork? It looks like, you know, are you in San Francisco? I'm like, no, it's London. So they have this, they have this template for how they do it. And, and it's real, the, the difference between public and private space is really, really interesting and in how well they do that, how, how well they almost program for it in that it's very easy to feel connected and there's a lot of energy and there's people around and stuff. But then you go into your essentially uh, a little cubicle, but it's an enclosed office and you can shut that all out. And I had always been like, I, you know, my career started in journalism. So I started in the world of open newsrooms and like, you know, uh, almost that cliche of like the typewriters going and people yelling at each other and phones ringing and like, it's a newsroom. We're making a newspaper. And I've, I've always worked in open environments and, and built those for the teams that I have led and things like that. And now I realize like, oh my God, no, we should, everybody should have their own little office. It should be uh, <laughs> clear. Like, I like the fact that the, the offices themselves are made out of glass. So it's not super private, but at the same time, you can like, my door is shut. Don't bother me. And it's quiet. And at the same time, you can step right out and be connected to everybody else. I don't know. I've been thinking about that a lot, too, and just how difficult it is when you have just this row of developers and row of designers all sitting all there trying to concentrate. How can you get into flow state in a situation like that? You, you have this situation now where in a lot of offices, they, 
I, when I say they, I'm referring to management had this idea that we've got to maximize our utilization of physical space. And the way we'll sell it to the creatives is that they'll be in close collaboration. Well, how can creatives get into flow state? You know, you've got this whole thing about uh, maker's time versus manager's yeah. time. There's almost no maker's right. time, you know, it's all it's all manager's time. And, and that's just insane. But then on the other hand, you have if you move away from that and you go into uh, maker's time and then you make make yourself this beautiful cocoon of sensory deprivation, it's like those sensory deprivation tanks. Too much sensory deprivation, right? It can freak you out completely. And if you don't have some kind of contact, that can also affect you negatively. Or you get to the position where I'm in, where I've constructed an almost perfect space for myself, and that's almost as irritating as being in a noisy space. <laughs> so I find now that what, what, what I do is if I hear a dog barking, I'll say, you know what? I'm just packing up my laptop. I'm finding a franchise coffee bar, and that's where I'll work. Because the background hum of noise the ambient chatter actually helps me feel relaxed. It's really unusual. I wish I could find out what that happy medium yeah. is. I haven't got there yet, but you know, I'm, I'm going to yeah, keep trying. Yeah. No, totally agree. Totally agree. So, um, so what you, you are doing some development work around, uh, VR these days, uh, aren't you? That, that is correct. My, my last, I guess nine to 12 months has been very VR focused. I'm spending many hours a day actually in VR. Wow. Oh, so you, you literally like with a, with the thing strapped to your face doing work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't even imagine. So, like, so speaking of how we work, I, I, so I can't imagine like the, the design testing process. Like you, you write some code looking at your laptop and then you put the thing on your face and, and then you take it off or do, it, like, are you going back and forth? It's, Tell me how that works. I can almost hear your um, your your mental circuitry <laughs> freezing at some point with this disconnect because I, I hear you. It's an incredibly breaking thing, you know, where you are starting off with well, what you're trying to do. Okay, so you, you're trying to wallpaper your hall from through a letterbox. That is what you're trying oh, to yeah. do with VR development. And as designers, people have got very good at doing that when they're creating traditional 3D games, which are now, I think, somewhat derisively referred to as 2D games, even though they're not. They're proper 3D representations, but they're projected onto a 2D plane. So designers have been doing that, artists have been doing that for quite some time, and they've become incredibly adept at creating 3D worlds through a 2D interface. Right Now here we are, where we're creating a truly 3D world projected into a, a I guess, a virtual 3D space that you actually experience through this 2D letterbox. And it is incredibly distracting um, moving backwards and forwards mm. because we've, we've got this experience over the last 20, 25 years, as long as 3D has been a thing in video games, of this, this idea that we are going to be somewhat disconnected from the 3D space. We are going to have to operate it through a 2D screen in order to create our experiences. But hey, when we actually test these experiences, we will still be viewing them through a 2D plane. So there is no real disconnection in that sense. You're, you're just getting used to the idea right. that you're connecting with your virtual content in a remote fashion. You're viewing it in a remote fashion. There is that disconnection. But now I, I find it incredibly difficult making that switch between the two it doesn't break the flow state that's the interesting oh, thing but i do find that the amount of time i spend in vr is far greater than i realized you know so the switch backwards and forwards itself isn't the issue 
it's the switch into VR that's the issue. Because once you're there, time really goes very, very quickly indeed. I hadn't appreciated this until I noticed about a month ago that when I lay down to go to bed, after a particularly intense, say, 12, 14-hour session where maybe four hours of that was spent entirely in VR, I was seeing all kinds of strange shapes hmm. in my visual field while my eyes were closed um, and repeating patterns and flashes that I'd never seen before in my life. So there are these side effects, but I think more importantly than that, just that jarring switch between the two makes you realize that the way we're going to be able to do this properly is if we are designing in VR. There are people who are beginning to create tools. There are uh, the the usual suspects like Unity and Unreal yeah. who are creating tools whereby you can edit your environments in 3D. But what, what I find is that this is more like sculpture than yeah, it yeah. is painting, you know? And actually, in video games, we don't have a lot of sculpture background. We have a lot of traditional painting background. So we're going to need to bring different skills to bear. And I feel that we need to be very careful not to jump too quickly towards sculpture, but just because of the uh, novelty of creating in a 3D space. What we want is to preserve the idea that as designers, we have created an impressive array of tools to automate or semi-automate the creation of content in 3D space. And not to throw the baby out with the bathwater just because we now have the freedom of designing and creating in a 3D environment. There is a distinction, I would imagine, though, and, and it'd be interesting to hear just like what is your split of time between the modeling or, or sculpting, you know, like making the objects that are going to be in the world you're creating versus the logic behind it, the, the writing of the code. Because I can't imagine that you're also like in a 3D world opening up a terminal window and, and writing some uh you know func functions and <laughs> algorithms right no quite right most of my time is spent in the developer mindset the coding yeah. mindset but in terms of placement or positioning or creating paths and so on that is still done in in a 2d window it could be done in 3d but i'm not sure what benefits that would bring sure because the way i like to think and the way i like to design is still in the abstract realm so I will be thinking in terms of very high-level concepts. So, for example, I, let, let's say we've got a series of rooms that are in, interconnected by doors in, in a row. And let's say there are three rooms, and we'll call them room one, room two, room three. Now, if you think about it, in the English language, I have just created some kind of imagery in your mind mm -hmm. just by speaking those out. But if I were to construct those in a 3D environment while I was in VR, it would take me longer to communicate that to you. Yeah? yeah, yeah. We've developed these amazing shortcuts of description, which I think conceptually serve us very well. We have a common shared language that we should continue to use. So I think voice is going to become increasingly important. And as you correctly identify, you can't really open up a, a terminal or a, a, a code editor window in VR and start typing away. There's the, the difficulty of not actually having proper haptic feedback for a proper keyboard. Mm -hmm. So voice is going to become increasingly important. And what's going to have to happen is that programming is going to have to evolve so that it is much more tolerant of the spoken word. Because at the moment, if you try to dictate your code, it's just going to be a mess. You know, there's no real uh, semantic understanding of code by voice uh, recognition no, right. algorithms that exist today. It's much more about natural language than it is about code. So that will have to involve, but maybe we'll have to develop 
a new language, a common language, an Esperanto of visual design driven by voice. So, for example, if I say to you, imagine three rooms, they're in a row. You would, you'd have to have a system that understood what I was talking about. And then it would want to drill down, right? So maybe it's Alexa style. It starts to ask me questions. Oh, dear, I think I've... Um, triggered my you've, you've triggered your device, Alexa which I've now <laughs> I've, oh, no. I've, I've done the same the, now mine the is cardinal sin <laughs> oh, what, what world do we live Alexa in now style, you know <laughs> fill in the gaps for me you know so it will say okay what size I'll say oh, I don't know three meters by three meters uh what height because of course it will realize that I've neglected to uh include the third dimension I'll say oh, make it 2.5 meters and now suddenly it's appeared in front of you that as a paradigm, I think is much more powerful than a designer quickly sketching stuff out on a 2D screen. So you have this, this matrix-like experience where you're sort of standing in a void and you say, like, computer, make a, make a room. How big? And, 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 and you right. just keep adding detail that way based on probably a set of pretty well-defined primitives and, and textures and all that kind of stuff. They've just all been mapped over to voice commands rather than palettes and things you click on. That would be a good start. I think once you start to add gestures to that, mm. then it becomes really powerful. Oh, yeah. So for example, let's say, for example, we, ha we have said to make me a room and it will make you a room and it will understand that the last 20 times that you've wanted to create a room, it's always been three meters by three meters by two meters, let's say, or 2.5 meters. Okay, so it creates a room around you. It's got white walls. It's got maybe... Uh, you, you've always gone for a wooden floor, so it starts with that. So it's pre-filled in those details for you. So you started with the voice. You've created, you know, your intent has been communicated through your voice. Now, let's say you want a sofa. Okay, we're, we're being very traditional here. Um, let's create a sofa. So I will say, make me uh, a Chesterfield sofa with three seats and put it over there. Now, with my touch controller in my right or left hand, I'm pointing somewhere and providing additional context. I don't have to say, place it at coordinate zero, zero, zero. Right, you know? right, 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 uh, right. Because people don't think like that, and people shouldn't have to think like that. And although designers have been trained to think like that, we're not creating a pixel-perfect world right now. But we could do that. We could say the standard snapping grid to be on 0.5-meter intervals, Right. So now if I say to make me a Chesterfield three feet sofa and put it over there and make it face me and I'm pointing somewhere, it yeah. will snap to a grid, it will create something, it will know the properties of a sofa, it will know that a sofa has, um, it's going to be affected by gravity, of course you could change all that by overriding defaults. That then starts to become a much quicker way of doing things. But <laughs> the problem with that is you imagine an office full of um, yeah. open plan desks with people talking to their computers. Exactly. You are going to need some degree of isolation. Right, right, right. Yeah, back to our earlier point. That's that's interesting. Now, are there systems that are approaching that level of interactivity for design? Or are you still really like sitting in tools like Maya or AutoCAD or some of those? You're spot on. People are more using um, the traditional tools at the moment. But I think it's a transitional phase. The likes of Unity and Unreal, and I'm sure many others, are working on tools that are much more VR-focused. I know that uh, Unity are working on an editor at the moment that allows you to create within the Unity environment actually in VR. But it it's not quite there. And I know they're also working on voice recognition as well. They have this thing called Unity Labs. And I'm pretty sure I read an article late last year about how they were working on a speech-driven interface for this kind of thing. But I think it's a combination of speech and gestures that will really make the difference. And if that happens, 
then I think we're in for a very exciting time. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by Dice.com. Dice has been helping tech professionals advance their careers for more than 20 years. They have the tools and insights needed to give you an edge. The Dice Careers mobile app is the premier tool to manage your tech career from anywhere. With thousands of positions from top companies, you'll find exactly what you're looking for. Wondering what's next in your career? Dice's new career pathing tool will help you learn about new roles based on your job title and skills. They'll even show you which skills you'll need to make the move. The Dice Career Market Value Calculator allows you to understand what your skills are worth. Discover your market value based not only on your job title and location, but based on your specific skill set. Don't just look for a job. Manage your career with Dice. You can do all of this with the Dice mobile app, which you can download at dice.com presentable. My thanks to Dice for sponsoring this show and all of Relay FM. All of this feels still pretty constrained uh, to the world of gaming that I haven't really seen very many uh, other types of applications of virtual reality or frankly acceptance by a broader audience and people that are willing to put you know the device on their face and sit in an enclosed environment so I wonder your thoughts on that like where are we on that spectrum and where do you see it heading and things I'm very pleased you threw in the reference to spectrum there because I'll give you an example by way of my early career when I was at school we had this ugly hunk of a machine called the research machines and it was black and white at a 64 by 64 square terminal <laughs> which represented one quarter of a character and they were actually just block characters and you could plot on a 64 by 64 grid it had i think it was a five and a quarter inch floppy drive that I don't know, maybe let you put about 10 bytes on it or something <laughs> crazy like that. But it was it was really ugly. It was really slow. Nobody liked it except the extreme geeks. And at that point, I was more into music than um, computers. So I didn't care. But then one summer, my education was curtailed and my future life completely rewritten as a good friend of mine who, who still remains a friend to this day, Jeff Foley, gave me a leaflet for the ZX Spectrum, which is about to come out. Now, the Spectrum was everything that the research machines was not. It was diminutive. It was color. It had an obscene amount of memory. It could be programmed to play video games, which, of course, the research machines could not. And so everything about computing changed for me that summer. Everything that was inaccessible and cold and machine room-like and ugly and sterile was now playful and in my living room and programmable and cute and accessible. And the same thing will happen with VR. I mean, yes, it is really, e even for a developer who loves the cutting edge of technology like myself, I find putting on a VR headset somewhat cumbersome. Mm. I say somewhat cumbersome. Other people will, will be a lot more uh, negative in their view. They don't want this thing on their head. But the thing is, when they put this hulk of a thing on their heads and then they are immersed in a good VR experience, everything changes. Yeah. And how are we exposing people to that experience? At the moment, it's only through VR arcades. It's the only way you can get to understand that, you know what? VR has come of age. There is something very different about what VR is today compared to some of the abortive experiments of the 1990s. And so the technology will get better. It always does. It will become more accessible. It will become lighter, smaller, more powerful, less distracting, and more acceptable. It just takes time.
There was an article recently in Bloomberg saying that they were speculating that Apple's next big thing will be augmented reality. Maybe we should break that down just a little bit because I've, I've been intrigued by the difference between virtual reality and augmented reality. The, uh, in my understanding, virtual reality, you put a headset on, it kind of blocks out the real world and tries to essentially trick your brain into thinking you're in a different world, as opposed to augmented reality, which is an overlay on what you see in the real world. So I, you know, I spent most of my career building tools for people and interactive experiences and things like that. And augmented reality truly like captures my imagination that you could put a layer of data and visualization over the things that I'm looking at right now. And I, and I realized like we haven't really seen very good ex examples of this yet in any kind of shipping product. I think the Google Glass experience uh, or experiment rather was mostly terrible in that it didn't do any tracking to the real world. It just kind of floated a screen off in your periphery. And, and I don't think that even comes close to this, this, this idea of an overlay on the world. But uh, have you thought about this? Like, what, what do you think? And, and do you think Apple is a company to pioneer something like this? Or I don't know. What are your thoughts on the difference between the two? It's a really, really great question. Because you have to ask yourself why a company as important as Apple would be seemingly, because we still don't know for sure, this is based on some of uh, Tim Cook's public pronouncements, is right. more focused on AR than VR. I think it's because they are extremely sensitive about what the customer will accept and will not accept. And they feel, and probably correctly, that AR as a technology is less intrusive and will be more easily absorbed into the daily lives of, uh, of people who use their products. Yeah. I, I think that's the theory. I mean, from a, from a developer perspective and from a gaming perspective, it just reminds me of one of my favorite quotes of all time, and I hope I'm getting this right, but it was George Bernard Shaw who said, you know, you see things and you ask why, but I dream the things that never were, and I say, why not? Mm, and nice. that for me is more more about VR than AR, right? Because the thing about VR for me is I can construct a reality that simply doesn't exist, yeah. and I can do it in real time, and I can change that reality in real time. Whereas what you're doing with AR is you are not actually changing the reality. You are adding to it. And as far as I'm concerned, so this is a very opinionated view, by the way, so I, I hope most people will reject this, but my <laughs> feeling is that we already <laughs> my feeling is that we already have too much data in our lives. We already have too much input in our lives. We already have overload in our lives. I don't want my reality to be even more cluttered. I like simplicity. I like cleanliness. I like order. I don't want too much data. However, if there was some kind of continuum between VR and AR, if the headgear that you have to wear was a lot less intrusive, um, a lot more visually appealing, and perhaps cool, because Apple can do that, right? Apple can take something that Google were unable to deliver on and perhaps deliver the cool factor just because it's Apple, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I hope so anyway. But if there was some continuum between VR and AR such that the things it would be some kind of digital augmentation of the brain's reticular activating system so that the things that i'm currently interested in come into even sharper focus and the things that i'm less interested in get blurred out that would be interesting to me right so for example let's say i have some augmented reality system i have a headset on or glass let's say glasses and they also have 
audio components because audio for me is not 10% of reality. Audio for me, because I'm a very audio-centric person, is maybe 40% of reality. Mm -hmm. This yep. is not true, by the way. This is just my, yeah, yeah. my feeling about audio because, you know, we know that the brain is what? 50% of the brain is, is occupied by visual processing, right, right. which is a hell of a chunk. But let's just say audio is really important to this, and we need to be able to augment or diminish audio in some way as well. This system would know that I cannot stand the sound of barking dogs while I'm working, and it would be able to noise cancel those, but not anything else, right? right? And it would do the same for my visual perception as well. So, for example, right now I'm interested in working on my game and I want the rest of my environment to soften and blur. And it could do that. Right now, I'm really interested in a Tesla Model X, say. And what will happen is that as I'm crossing roads, every time there's a Tesla nearby, I will get some indication. Um, if it's coming into the road, it will get augmented with details on the car which particular model it is whether it has ludicrous mode and so on so it becomes like a, a digital extension of my existing reticular activating system and provides me with intense metadata on those objects and ideas that are of most interest to me in life right now that then becomes really interesting i don't know if apple will get there in one year frankly i i feel that that's where ar should head but my concern with that is we already have digital augmentations of our reticular activating system, and they're called Facebook ads, right? And they don't work very well. So, so you mean... <laughs> you know, my, my feed. Sorry, go on. When, when you say reticular activating system, this is the evolved behavior that, like, catches a saber-toothed tiger out of the corner of my eye so I don't get eaten. Exactly. You know, when, when, you're, when you're interested in... Let's say you just bought a red car, right? This is the famous example. Right. From now on, you will spot red cars everywhere. You'll see red cars everywhere. It's just the areas in life that are really important to you. Your brain tends to shout them out to you. So you see, a, a, a blended world between AR and VR is pretty interesting. Uh, and admittedly, though, the way you're talking about it seems quite a long ways off. That I can imagine Apple coming up with, with something that could that reasonable people would wear around that might at least start with putting the map directions actually on the roads as you're looking at the roads. That seems like the next baby step in that direction, which means having a pretty significant understanding of the world around us and making sure that that mapping happens so that it feels really seamless, which I think was one of the big problems with Google Glass is it's just like, it was just floating there all the time. And when I moved my head, it moved. What we really want is to be able to paint on the world or as you're saying in VR, paint a new world. Right. I got to ask you a question. I hope you don't mind. It's somewhat personal. Do you wear glasses? I do. Yeah, me too. It's kind of a pain to think of how a VR or AR system fits into all of that. The VR sets are somewhat accommodating, but I don't know if I'd want to buy a pair of glasses that had been prescription modified. So here's an idea. It's an absolutely crazy idea. And I don't know. This, this might be amazing. This would make me wear AR glasses in a heartbeat. What if there was... Um, a set of AR glasses that had cameras over each eye that looked at the world and for people who were short-sighted or long-sighted or whatever were able to modify the world and bring it into sharp focus and project mm -hmm. that back onto the eye. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then I'd wear a pair of AR glasses all the time. No problem. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, but again, that's probably somewhat... Some, but, but that's the kind of thing that Apple could do that would surprise a lot of people. But yeah. in fact, for even for people with twenty twenty vision, it could enhance their vision, give them 
real detail or objects that are quite some way away. You know, because there are already cameras out there. I, I was uh, speaking to a scientist recently who's working on robotics and artificial intelligence and so on. And one of the things he told me was that robotics already have extrasensory per perception. I asked him to explain this somewhat uh, controversial statement. And he said, look, there are cameras that are now so sensitive to the color of your skin that they, they can actually detect your heartbeat from color changes on the surface of your skin, which are invisible to the human eye. This is a form of extrasensory perception. He said, think of the applications of this. You could have such a camera in a doctor's waiting room or in an emergency room, and the camera could silently triage all of the patients who are in real danger. It could analyze heart rate um, variations among patients who are in distress and prioritize those dynamically. So that kind of thing is already happening with camera technology. And we know that Apple are consistently on the cutting edge of phone mm -hmm. camera technology. So uh, I don't know if that's how they would use cameras, but what it what it suggests to me is that they could do something dramatically different that would make the uptake of wearing such glasses much higher if they were able to deliver way above the existing AR experiences we've experienced in the past by perhaps providing some sort of extrasensory perception. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, good technology is, is like a superpower, really, in, in, in many regards. Right. So I want to I ask you about when you're designing for VR. Like I said, I spent my career doing interactive design for mostly web apps, mobile apps, and, and things like that. And very early on, when we were getting started with, with doing that interaction design, there were a set of primitives that we had to sort of all agree on, and that came mostly from computer operating systems and GUIs of the day. And I'm talking about like real basic stuff, like the difference between a checkbox and a radio button, and, and a drop-down menu and a pop-up menu. You know, like the differences, all of those, and when you used each one in, in what situation, what you were communicating with those. And I, I got to imagine, like, there's a whole new set of those things happening in VR design for how you take somebody through an environment, show them what's interactive, have them be able to interact with it. How, do you, how are you thinking about that kind of stuff now? This is the kind of thing that excites me the most. We are inventing a brand new form. And that is why I, I left a really good career to go back to making games again, because that is a thing that I experienced in the early 80s, and I didn't want to miss out on that again. Yeah. Because I, I think I curtailed my development career uh, somewhat out of fear, and I wanted to recontinue at some suitable point. I left it a bit late, but this for me is the most exciting time. We are literally inventing forms. There are some kind of uh, conventions emerging. So, for example, there is the idea of a time-based radial that fills up based on you gazing at a, a UI element in 3D space, which is a really established norm right now. This is the idea of, uh, I've read a bit about this, of fuse buttons, basically, like you stare at a thing and you have like a little crosshairs. And as you stare at it, if you hold your gaze on this thing long enough, something interactive will happen. Yeah, you have this radial GUI. Yeah. And it fills up over time. So if depending on how the the user interface is set up, this will either be a very short period or a long period, but basically that that radial will be projected onto the object 
so that it doesn't appear out of focus because otherwise that can be very uncomfortable. Got it. It's projected in 3D space onto the object. It fills up and when it fills up, that object is activated. That was one of the earliest conventions that were adopted for systems that didn't have much in the way of interaction over and above the gaze. Okay, so that worked really well for for headsets like the Gear VR that are very smartphone-based. Uh-huh. But for touch-based interfaces, including the Oculus touch interfaces, the HTC Vive hand controllers, and the PlayStation Move controllers, it becomes a lot more gestural and interesting, and people are making things up as they go along. There is still no established norm for user interface using touch controllers. Hmm. But what people are doing more and more of is grabbing and throwing, uh, pointing and clicking, which I think are really boring and really unimaginative. But they're an okay starting point. And it happens every time there is a transition in mediums. So, right, right. you know, when, when TV, this is the, the most quoted example, when TV first started, the first TV shows were basically radio plays, but with a camera, you know, yeah. and that's going to happen. So you have to have a starting point. And so you will have the skeuomorphic approach and be a kind of parodying the established norms of the 2D world that we grew up in. And starting off with that and then building up from there. It's evolution. It will keep getting better and people will come out with new paradigms and and new interfaces that are completely suited to living and working and playing in a 3D VR space. There are some real fundamentals, though, around things like how people actually move and do acceleration. And a lot of the games that I've seen literally just put somebody in a cockpit and say, uh, this is how we're going to move you around the world. Or there's teleporting or things like that. Very different than running around freely in the 3D space that I've seen anyway. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to do a very freeform approach, then why stick to the limits of the human body? I think the reasons for it are are simple because it's what we're taking, whether we appreciate it or not. The physical body is what we are taking with us into the, the VR space. And because of that, the more of the body you can introduce through gestures, through movements, you know, like whether you're crouching, whether you're leaning, whether you're uh, looking up or down or whether you're waving your arms about, the more of that you can bring into the VR space, the more immersed the player will feel or the user will feel. And that, that's why this is important. However, there are some serious ob- obstacles. Um, the vestibular system works for most people which means that we will, until we solve a lot of problems, uh, and, and I don't think some of these will ever be solved, until we come up with some kind of mechanism that stops us feeling sick, it's always going to be difficult when there is a disconnect between what our physical bodies are doing, which have been hardwired and connected uh, to our brains since birth, and since before birth, actually, and then move to a place where human beings feel comfortable that their virtual bodies are doing something that their physical bodies aren't. I Mm. don't think the human body can evolve fast enough to to match that. So the alternative is going to be the development of more and more sensors that are able to map what the human body is doing into the virtual space and making sure that the gap between what the user is experiencing in VR and how the body is positioned in real 3D space, there, there is never too much of a mismatch. On the other hand, what we don't know is because I don't think there have been enough studies done on this. Here's the thing. We are creating a form in which it has been commercialized before 
the medical and psychological aspects of it have been worked out. Right. Right. And this doesn't happen very often. I mean, look at mobile phones. We had similar similar kind of thing. And, you know, these phones were in the market and then suddenly people were asking question. Hey, are these things safe? Is it OK to keep t- keep these things in my hip pocket or my front pocket or close to my heart? Well, you know, there have been lots of studies done. They're somewhat inconclusive. I guess people aren't dropping dead of phone use. Not yet anyway. So I guess they're kind of OK. But VR goes much further than that because you're strapping the thing onto your face, you know, and you're immersed in a reality that you aren't normally immersed in. So our willingness as a society to commercialize this space and before we've discovered what the potential impact could be is somewhat concerning, but people seem to be OK so far. But just because of that, it's going to take time before there's widespread adoption. Kind of the overriding design principle uh, in the the 2D GUI world that I've always practiced has been usability. Can people discover the functions of a system and figure out how to use them and and, uh, be successful at the tasks they're trying to do? It seems like in VR, one of the primary design philosophies should be around comfort, ergonomics, making sure people feel well while they're doing things. Yes, that's a primary consideration. One of the things, when I was at PlayStation, one of the things that was drummed into us time and time again is that the very first priority of any experience has got to be user comfort. The The problem was, and the problem still remains, that different people have a different tolerance for what constitutes comfort and discomfort in VR. And so there were a set of guidelines established by the the different players in the VR hardware space, about what did and didn't work. And here's the problem. They found that there were so many exceptions to these rules that it's going to take time before we settle on what really does and doesn't work because different people have different tolerances for these things. There are some really obvious comfort issues. So, for example, you talked earlier about a cockpit, and the reason you do that is you have some kind of stationary reference, which most people are familiar with. People are familiar with the idea of sitting in a car and the world goes by. They're familiar with the idea of people being in an aeroplane and the world goes by. You know, you have a fixed reference point and therefore moving the world is okay. And you can move your head around in that space and the view will correspond to where you're looking. Mm-hmm. However, moving the the camera that corresponds to the user's head directly is an absolute no-no. So you never, ever limit head movement because that makes people feel sick very, very quickly. Acceleration, deceleration also cause nausea in a lot of people. So one of the things that that works okay is a very, very quick acceleration to the point you want to go. Uh, Sometimes instantaneous works really well, but uh, other times a very short acceleration curve to the eventual target speed. Um, Not going too fast. No head bobbing, you know, as you get in first-person games Mm and uh, particularly first-person shooters. Uh, People have found that a speed, a walking speed of about 1.4 meters per second seems to be okay. Above that, then the tolerances kind of fall away and more and more people begin to feel uncomfortable. So yes, there are lots of issues around comfort, but there are very few hard and fast rules that tend to work with the majority. So we're, we're still for want of a better way of putting it, feeling our way around what <laughs> people are comfortable with and what they're not. So what's working right now? What kind of stories or, or gameplay is, is really, do you think we've started to figure out and understand already? I, I think people have, have started with the obvious impact stuff. So, so for example, horror seems to be 
pretty constant a theme. Um, shooting seems to be a constant theme. And I have to say, I, I found I, I find both of those boring. I'm not going to be too judgmental about them, but I understand that it's a necessary step. You know, there there are three things that people are going to go for straight away, uh, three themes that people are going to go for straight away. And sadly, they are killing people. They are being killed by people in a horrific situation or potentially being killed by people in a horrific situation, i.e. horror games and their sex. And that's yeah. just the way uh, media works, right? But people will get past that. There will be newer experiences. It will start to feel magical. This is just a way of finding customers from older spaces and bring them over to this new space. This has been great. This is uh, really illuminating. A lot of stuff that I hadn't thought about before. It makes me a little bit want to start playing around more with VR. I had an experience a while back where I, um, I spent an hour with an Oculus. The remarkable part about it was just how instantly emotional it was. And it was very much, I mean, you like, if you've used the Oculus, there's a set of scenes that you can just walk into, essentially, that show off what it's like. And there's one where you're standing on a girder over a city in a, in a <laughs> uh, you know, and, and just yeah, suddenly yeah. like, holy <laughs> crap, you know. And, and this other experience where you're in some big hall and you yeah. hear these like huge footsteps coming and this giant <laughs> T-Rex comes around the corner. I was literally petrified. Like, yep. I couldn't. I couldn't move in the game, but I also physically couldn't move. I was just like heart rate, blood pressure, the whole thing. It was really, really remarkable. So I think the potential yeah. here is is true. It's tremendous. Yes, absolutely. I mean that those themes are repeated quite a lot. Vertigo is a great one. You know, I I have terrible vertigo. I I couldn't change a light bulb. You know, I can't stand in the stall and change a light bulb. So, I have terrible vertigo. So the first time I played the skyscraper de demo, rather just experienced the skyscraper demo, what I had to do was lift the headset up slightly and remind myself that I was actually in my shed. Yeah, I had yeah. to do that because otherwise I would have just fallen over and started screaming. Um, yeah. and and the dinosaur one. You know that the the great thing about that I found was the sound also. Yep. Because hearing those footsteps is what makes you concerned. But then when you have that great big beast drooling over you and, <laughs> and roaring, it's the roar and the object. The, the combination is profound. Yeah, yeah. And you would not feel that way if you were looking at that on a 2D screen. You just wouldn't. No, no, it was that's remarkable. It was, it was really a remarkable experience. Yeah, maybe I'm going to have to... Uh, Again, do some further justification and, and get one for my seven-year-old and then never let him play with it. We'll see. <laughs> uh, let's see. Now, you are uh, also a podcaster on this Relay FM network. You do the Remaster podcast with uh, Federico and Mike where you talk games. Yes. Yes. Remaster. Yes. So I will put a link to that in the show notes as well as to you on Twitter. And uh, where else? Where else shall we send people? Oh, uh, Twitter is fine. I mean, uh, I have a, a blog and Facebook and LinkedIn like everybody else. But, you know, people know how to use Google. That's right. Well, I'll put some links in the show notes and we'll get people to, you know, just more of your ideas. I think you, you're really onto some stuff. And I really appreciate the time uh, you've spent here with me explaining this all to me. It's been my absolute pleasure, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me on. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.